It is part nine of our Matthew series that we're going through cover to cover here and verse by verse. And I entitled today's message, A New Revolution. Jesus tears down preconceived ideas of the Messiah. I want to begin with a quote at the top of your page by Robert Farrar Capon. He said this, the Messiah was not going to save the world by miraculous band-aid interventions. A storm calmed here, a crowd fed there, a mother-in-law cured back down the road. Rather, it was going to be saved by means of a deeper, darker, left-handed mystery at the center of which lay his own death. Last week, we brought out a bunch of a series of miracles that Jesus had done that Matthew captures for us. And I told you, miracles are not just for flash. They're not just for, wow, isn't that amazing? Now, sometimes they serve that purpose. We talked about two major reasons for miracles last week, one of which was sheerly compassion. Jesus sometimes just loves on people and will turn the whole world upside down for them. But the other major reason that we hit on was that it was proof of him being the Messiah. And to highlight that point for you, I need you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. In the Bibles handed to you, it's page 686. That should make it faster. Page 686 or Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. We're about to study this in a few coming weeks, but I want to highlight just a few verses to drive this point home. Speaking of John the Baptist, Matthew records this. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? It's a pretty fair question for a guy who's about to die for this whole thing. He wants to know, are you the Messiah? What was Jesus' response? He said this. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, just walking around and saying you're the Messiah doesn't cut it. Lots of people have claimed to be the Messiah. But you got to have some proof behind you. And he had plenty of proof. And they were the evidence of the miracles that were even mentioned in the Old Testament were going to occur. Jesus went through and systematically nailed them all down to show beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he was indeed the Messiah they had been waiting for. But miracles are not just for proof of Messiahship. It's not just for compassion. Sometimes it's to blow superstition out of the water. People have all kinds of preconceived ideas about who they think God is. And so sometimes he just messes with them and says, no, I'm not like that at all. Sometimes he's just breaking their formulas. They think they have God in a box and they think he's going to do exactly this. So Jesus does the opposite. Sometimes it was a re-rack their mind about what the law and the Old Testament was really about. And so he'd do miracles on the Sabbath and make everybody go crazy to try to figure out what he was doing. There was a lot of reasons. Sometimes it was a merely a teaching moment, right? Where he would do something amazing and everyone would stop and look at him and he'd say, now let me tell you what I wanted to say. And sometimes it was just to break down barriers in society. He didn't have to do miracles with women, but he did. He didn't have to do miracles with Samaritans, but he did. He didn't have to do miracles with Gentiles, but he did. It's, he didn't have to touch the leper, but he did. He kept doing things that society said were unacceptable. And so the fill in the blank in front of you is very simple. Jesus as Messiah shocked the world. 
Jesus as Messiah shocked the world. It's not just that a Messiah arrived. It was a Messiah that was all wrong that caused the problem. Nobody wanted him like that. He wasn't doing it right. He wasn't saying the right things. He wasn't following the right guidelines. He was not fitting in anybody's formula. He was a sheer problem in their minds. As a matter of fact, when they put him to death, they believed they were doing God a favor. The Bible says. Jesus as Messiah shocked the world. Would you turn with me two pages back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, just a couple pages back from where you were. Now, I'm going to do something that may have drove you nuts last time, so of course I have to do it again. Because you will know that there are four gospel accounts, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of these stories are included in John, so that helps us with one. But we still got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all right? So what I did is I compiled together all those accounts as if they were all writing together, smushed them all together, and I'm going to be reading to you those combo accounts today so we can get the full meaning of what all four gospel writers, or three in this case, had to say about the issue. However, we're just going to begin reading in Matthew one short verse, and then we'll pray for the word this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, let's dive into it. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. Well, that sounded easy. Maybe we need to study a little bit, find out how hard that really was. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes and illuminate scripture to us that we can get it? And Father, there's so many of us that are so caught up and burdened by our own concerns and problems that we can't even hear what's going on right now. Lord, would you minister to us where we're at and draw us to where you are? Father, allow us to understand how this applies, why it matters, and what you're trying to say to our heart. May we leave here pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the combo version of that same story. We're going to begin kind of with some of Mark's thoughts. So maybe some of you want to follow along and just hold your finger till I get back to Matthew. Or some of you will just want to set the Bible aside and listen. Now, for a lot of you that think I'm a heretic, you just ask for my notes. I'll let you know how I put it together the way I did so that you don't have any questions in your mind. Some of you have asked for those on email and I'll just fire them over to you. You always have that freedom. All right. Here's how it goes if they were all talking. I'm going to do a a little bit of line, pause, explain a little bit, and then we'll carry on. Here's how it begins according to Mark. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, as rabbis normally do, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, a man named Matthew. Whoops, let's pause. What's his name? Is it Levi or is it Matthew? Well, it's kind of Levi-Matthew. Why? Well, those of you that are familiar with scripture know that God messes with people's names all the time. It was Abram, then it became Abraham. It was Jacob, and then it became what? Israel. And so you go through all these different name plays in the Bible because names are not just what you're called. They reflect a character of you. So sometimes they would change your name as you reflected a different sort of character. And sometimes you had a different name merely because you're in a multicultural environment. For example, Daniel had a separate name because in Hebrew, his name was one thing in the Babylonian language. His name was another. So in the Bible, it's hard to track with a lot of folks because their names are different sometimes. Well, in the New Testament, it's no different. We know Simon better as Peter. 
Okay, so we always talk about the disciple named Peter. We don't think about him being Simon. So to make it easier, everyone calls him Simon Peter. All right. So in the same way, we got a guy with two names, but there's some bomb that just got dropped that I would like to highlight. His name is Matthew, but he's also known as Levi, son of what? Alpheus. Now, I may be making more of this than is here. And so I want you to take this with a grain of salt, but it's something worth examining. Why is that name odd? Well, in all the listings of the disciples and the apostles, the 12 guys that were closest to Christ, there's a guy listed there that's another disciple named James the Less. Now, it doesn't really mean less. A better translation is James the Little. He's the little James, right? Now, there was James and John, so there must have been big James and little James, all right? Now, why he got that name, we don't know if it was his stature. We don't know if it was his age. We don't know why, but we got Junior. Now, what's weird about Junior is that he's known as James, the son of Alphaeus. Well, how odd is that? Really? We got two disciples, two apostles with the same name of their dad that aren't related I mean, really, we've just picked out of this region. Are there that many Alphaeuses running amok all over the place, having kids that are grabbed by Jesus? I mean, it seems kind of weird. Now, it's very possible because a lot of the names were common in that day. But here's the reason I pointed out. According to scholars, James the Less is likely the cousin of Jesus. Now, why? His mom is sister-in-law to Mary. They both married brothers. We all got that? So his mom's name is Mary. Jesus' mom's name is Mary. And they married two brothers, Joseph and Cleopas. Those two brothers then make them uh, related by marriage. Now, if James was his cousin, and if Matthew's his brother, what does that make Matthew? But Jesus' cousin. And if that's the case, how odd is it that Jesus had a cousin named that was a tax collector? Does that seem strange? Regardless if it's true or not, he becomes known for what he does, because this is the story of the author of the whole book that we're studying. So let's dive into that. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, a man named Matthew, a tax collector, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Well, for most of you that have been in the church, you know what a tax collector is. What about the rest of us? Let me bring you up to speed. The Roman Empire ran the world at that time. Well, they ran the Middle East as well. And so the Jews were underneath the power of the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire wanted to make sure everybody paid their taxes because that's how they got their revenue. That's how they got their cash. However, they didn't want to pay a bunch of Romans to go sit out here and collect taxes. So they did it the fastest, cheapest way, which was to get volunteers from the locals. So they went to the Jewish people and said, who would like to volunteer and be a tax collector? There might be a little bit of cash in it for you. And a certain amount would raise their hand. Now, let me explain the taxes in that day. There were three major stated taxes by the Roman government. There was the income tax. If you did any services, they would tax you on your income that you made. There was the ground tax, which meant if you grew anything out of Rome's ground, you owed tax. Then there was what was called the poll tax, which meant if you're living and breathing, you owe me tax. 
right? Those three were the major stated tax. But on top of that, there were taxes for everything. Oh, you crossed my road? That's a tax. Oh, you crossed my lake? That's a port tax. Oh, you sold some goods and services? That's a tax. They had taxes on everything ranging from 1% to 12.5%. And they were constantly taxing the people. Well, in order to organize all that, they had people all over the place collecting this stuff. Those were tax collectors. How much did you hate that guy? Not only was he one of you, and he was a turncoat because he worked for the Roman Empire, but the Jews believed there was only one king. Who was that? Yahweh. We do not pay taxes to another king. He is not our legitimate king. So they already found it very offensive that there was such a thing as taxes, and you volunteered for this job? Tax collectors were labeled, according to the Jewish society, as unclean. Where have you heard that phrase before? All last week, we talked about the leper. So as much stigma as you're not allowed to touch anything, that is how tax collectors were viewed. As a matter of fact, they were never allowed to testify in court because they are already known as corrupt and unclean. So... You're an outcast. You hang out with the outcast people. Therefore, their name became synonymous with the sinners. That in quotations, meaning the people that were obvious sinners, everyone in society that were the dregs of society, the guys that were the cast outs, the hardcore guys and the gals. All these people were herded together and they hung out with each other. The tax collectors were part of that crew. This is the man that Jesus comes walking by. Now, because he's right near a port in Capernaum, they believe that he was collecting port taxes. Now, he knew about Jesus. There's no way to be in this region and not know about the miracle guy. There's no way not to know that a guy claimed to be the Messiah and did the extraordinary. He may have been on the outside areas listening to the teaching on the fringe. He may have heard a lot about it. If he was related, he certainly knew who this guy was. So where does our story take us? He passed a tax collector sitting in his tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Matthew got up, left everything, and followed him. Is that a big deal? I don't know. Let's play a little game. Ready? All of you, today, quit your job going to full-time ministry. Now. No takers? That's weird. Why not? Oh, what's your excuse? Oh, you got to feed your family. Whatever. Well, you think he didn't have to feed his family? You think he had no ties? He just left one of the most lucrative jobs, and he's never going to be accepted anyway. Even after a tax collector bails out of his job, they still know that he was a turncoat. They still know him as a traitor. He's never going to be accepted. So why in the world would he walk away from all that cash? Because the Messiah called. And all he said was, follow me. Now, in that day, rabbis would do that. They would walk by and they would call people out and say, will you be my disciple? It's a very familiar way of doing things. So sure enough, he calls out to him. Matthew knew exactly what it meant. So he stepped forward, slid his table aside, left it with the other guys, said, I'm out. And walked away from everything. How incredible is that? You got that kind of faith? You going to walk away like that? Now, I'm way too tied sometimes to do radical movements like that. It picks up. It says, then Levi held a great banquet. Now, 
remember, Matthew is not real good at chronology. That's not his point. His point is not to write in order. His point is to collect stories. Therefore, this did not likely happen next. And there's a bunch of reasons why I don't want to go into for time. But this happened down the road. But Matthew or Levi, who was very wealthy, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, a large crowd of tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Jesus had a huge following in the hardcore scene. You understand what I'm saying? They all come together. If you are part of the tax collectors and sinners crew and you throw a party, who are you going to invite? The only people you know, it's your friends, right? So everybody's rough. So you bring this huge herd into this house and Jesus comes in and hangs out with you. In our, in our context, in our world, in our viewpoint, in modern day America, we just have burgers with people. We don't care. We don't even have to like you. It's kind of like, hey, we had dinner, whatever. I don't like you. Back then, eating a meal together was an identification statement. In other words, we do not just eat together. If I eat with you in a tight-knit community, everyone knows we ate together, and now we are linked together. So you were very careful who you ate with. There was a lot of rejection. Hey, you want to come over for dinner? No, you're unclean. I mean, that's pretty hardcore, right? They would say no all the time. So when Jesus said yes, it was a big statement. So here he is surrounded in a massive party environment with all these folks that no one thinks are clean. And what happens? Well, hold on a second. There are two little errors that we get into about this little passage. Number one, Christians sometimes go off on this little tangent that the only people Jesus ever hung out with were the rough, hardcore, poor, messed up, screwed up people. Oh, no, Jesus only hung out with those people. He only hung out with the down and out. He only hung out with the poor. Baloney. You haven't read your Bible. In a few chapters, he's going to have dinner at a Pharisee's house. The point is, Jesus didn't let society say who he was and was not going to hang out with. He hung out with the top to the bottom. Now, did he spend the majority of his time with the poor? Sure did, because that's who knew they needed a savior. So, yeah, of course he did. But that wasn't the only people he hung out with. One other issue, and this is one that teenagers, mostly Christian teenagers, like to throw at their parents. Drives me insane. Here's how the excuse goes. Don't get on me about my friends. That's who Jesus hung out with. (laughs) Right. Yeah, but Jesus didn't hang out with them to score weed. You understand what I'm saying? All right, then. Here's the deal. Jesus hung out with them for a purpose. Jesus hung out with them to take the hit that they might know his love. Jesus did it with all intention. Jesus had it organized. He was there to love on them. He was there to sacrifice for them. He was not kicking back with them because you just wanted them to be your buddies. That's not why Jesus was there. So do not use this as an excuse to justify your poor behavior. Proverbs was very clear that who we hang out with really impacts who we are. Therefore, you better be real clear on who you're hanging out with. Now, if you want to take a hit, if you want to be bolstered up and discipled and locked in so that you can go out and reach into a really rough element of society and you can love them and bring Jesus to them and be true friends of them and care about them and cry with them, then praise God. Finally, someone gets it right. But please don't just do it haphazardly. 
That's not how Jesus operated. Move on, says this. When the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect saw this, they complained to his disciples, why do you and your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? All right, here's another group that really bugs me. Ready? The thought police. You guys all know who I'm talking about? These are the members of church that all they want to do is spend their time talking about what everyone else is doing wrong. Okay, we don't like you. Just letting you know right now, in case you were wondering. Let me make it real clear. Here's why. What, really? You have no life? So you got to sit there and talk about someone else's life? Hold on a second. No, 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 no. The Pharisees were not invited to the party. They're a little bitter. So they're sitting out on the outside looking with little binoculars into the house trying to figure out who they can get mad at. And they're constantly complaining. So I got people throughout my ministry and they're like, you know who I saw at the club the other night? I'm like, what were you doing at the club? (laughs) That's unimportant. Anyway, they were totally drinking. And you were just dancing. I know. I know how it is. Okay. No, 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 no. Now, if you have a real relationship with somebody and you see him slipping and you need to go in there and bolster him up or call him on some bad behavior, that's great. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who at a distance just lob missiles at other people and just try to cause a problem. That's not helpful. That's pretty divisive. So he responds to him. He said, now, why do I hang out with these people? Well, let me give you a clear answer. On hearing this, Jesus answered them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, it's pretty obvious, guys. I'm here to help those that are down and out. Who do you think I'm going to hang out with? The down and out. There you go. I go where the need is. They need me. So, of course, I'm here. Where else would I be? Then he blasts them. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He just threw Hosea 6, 6 right back at him. And he said, all you want to do is look good on the outside. How about loving people? How about starting there? Then I'll be pleased. And then he finishes up with this thought. For I have not come to call. That word call in Greek means to invite to a meal. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you go, is is Jesus saying there's some people that don't need to repent? No. He's saying there's some people that don't think they need to repent. And Jesus said, hey, I'm here to call the lost. You don't think you're lost? I guess I didn't come for you. I guess you're not going to heaven, huh? I came for those that know they need me because the rest of you are self-righteous and think you can get there on your own. I guess we have nothing to talk about. Pretty direct, pretty clear. We move on to the next story. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, which means either there was a national fast at that time or it was Monday or Thursday because the Pharisees fasted every Monday and every Thursday all day long. They didn't eat any food. So it could have been merely that. Now, John, the Baptist disciples and the Pharisees were fasting this day. Then John's disciples came and asked Jesus, how is it that we and the disciples of the Pharisees often fast and pray, but your disciples do not fast, but they go on eating and drinking? In other words, I'm totally miserable. How come you're not? Right? Anybody ever met anybody in the church like that? How come you're not doing it? And then Jesus gives them an analogy to tell them exactly why. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn or fast while he is with them? Can you even make them? They cannot. So long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And in those days they will fast. Here's an analogy. You need to understand 
ancient marriage ceremonies to have a clue on this one. I've taught you a lot about the marriage ceremony in the Jewish world, but here's one that I didn't know. When you got married as a young couple, you didn't go away on a honeymoon. You stayed home for a week. And when you were at home, you were treated like a king and a queen. You stayed in your own house and people from all over the neighborhoods would come and bring you presents. They'd come and bring you food. They'd come and bring you wine. They'd come and bring you all kinds of stuff. And they'd basically load you up for a week and you'd be living high for a week. They would actually sometimes call you king and queen to kind of bring up this fun atmosphere of celebration. Well, you would bring your buddies with you. You go, why do I want to hang out with them? Because everybody is poor. And so if you're going to live like kings and queens for a week, you want to share it with those that you love the most. So those people that are in your bridal party or your closest friends were called, quote, children of the bride chamber. And that's what this word means. He said Jesus was reflecting back to him and he goes, hold on a second. We're in party time. Why in the world are we fasting right now? No, 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 no. I'm still here. The Messiah is here. Why are you fasting anyway? Were you fasting because it's religious or are you fasting looking for the Messiah? Hello, right here, still here. You don't need to fast when I'm sitting right here. Now I'm going to go away and when I go away, of course you're going to fast. Of course you're going to get intense into this and there's going to be mourning and sadness, but not right now, not during party week. I'm with you. That was his response. It picks it up. With a parable, he told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For if he does, the new patch will pull away from the old garment, making the tear worse. He will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Okay, here's how it works. I know some of you don't do laundry, so let me explain. Here's how it goes. Let's say you got a pair of old jeans that you love and there's a big, huge tear in them. Well, you think... I don't want to lose these things. So you buy a new pair of jeans and cut out a patch out of the new jeans. Now you just ruin the new jeans. Are we all clear on that? You set that aside. You sew it over the old jeans and then throw it in the wash. What's going to happen? That new patch hasn't got a chance to shrink yet. So it shrinks and pulls away and makes the tear worse. Jesus said, we don't do that. That's just dumb. Okay. And then he gives another analogy. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins, for if they do, the wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, those of you that are not big wine and animal skin drinkers, let me give you this. They would do what's called, I found out last night, called boda bags. I had no idea that's what they were called, but found that out. Uh, you have a leather case or a leather bag that you would pour, and leather's animal skin, so we all clear on that. You pour the wine into that instead of a bottle. You cork it and then allow it to ferment. Everybody know that wine has to ferment over time. When it ferments, it releases gas pressures. Well, because it's leather, there's give to it. There's an elasticity to it. So it will stretch and move with the gas pressures. But once you eventually let it ferment and you drink it all, the skin begins to harden and it's all done stretching. Well, now, if you try to refill it with brand new wine and cork it, what's going to happen? The new wine in its fermenting will try to push. There's no give. Blam! Blows out the sides of it. That's all he just said. So what's his point? His point is very simply, I am not an add on to your life. I'm an overhaul. 
when you come to me, don't you dare try to fit me into your schedule on Tuesdays. Do not try to add in a little bit of Messiah here, a little bit of Messiah there. No, all or nothing. You do not take the Old Testament sacrificial system and then try to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in there. That's not going to fly. This is complete. Turn upside down. What do you think baptism is showing you? When we go under the water, we draw people down. Why? To symbolize that they die with Christ. When we bring them back up, what happens? That's resurrection. That's brand new life. The Holy Spirit brings new life and behold, all things become new. This is not about just putting a little bit of Jesus, mixing it around and everything's going to be fine. He will blow your mind. You cannot hang on to your old way of life and just try to have a little bit of Jesus. Ain't going to happen. That's all he was trying to tell him. Pretty practical. He moves on with a miracle. While he was saying this, a synagogue ruler named Jairus came. What's a synagogue ruler? He's the guy that's elected by the elders of the Jews to run the synagogue, which means he runs the building. He runs who teaches, when they teach, what they teach. He's basically the boss of the area. He's the center of Orthodox Judaism. Why in the world is he coming to Jesus? They got nothing to talk about. Remember, the two things that are going head to head here are what? Orthodoxy, old school, Jesus's new covenant. They're clashing right now. Why is the synagogue ruler coming to Jesus? It better be a big deal. Otherwise, why did he cross the picket line? Right? Why? Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and knelt before him, pleaded earnestly with him and said, My little only daughter, a girl of about 12, is dying. But please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. Real quick, how far are you willing to go for your kids? Aren't all bets off, right? You'll do anything. You guys, in my ministry, I've seen people that live their life largely making fun of miracle healers and this faith healer stuff. And they would just downgrade it and joke about it and make fun of it. And then their kids went down. Guess where they were willing to drive? To go see if the faith healers had anything. It's interesting what you're willing to do and how desperate you will get for your kids. This guy was not about playing games anymore. If someone could save his daughter's life, he was going there. Do you guys blame him? Absolutely not. But what an extraordinary place to go. Now, Jesus could have said, oh, now you want me. Oh, I see. In a second here, your people are going to kill me. And you all hate my guts. And now, because you want something from me, now I'm supposed to jump when you say jump. Did Jesus say any of that? Nope. Very simply, it says this. So Jesus got up and went with him. And so did his disciples. A large crowd followed and pressed around him and the crowds almost crushed him. Luke says. That's a pretty big deal. That's a mob scene. That's Jesus's day. Do you understand how his day went? You're looking at a typical day of Christ. No wonder he didn't want anybody to tell about him because this is what happens. Everybody wanted something from him. On their way to fix the little girl, it says this. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Stop. How long has she been bleeding? Thank you, two of you. Okay. The right answer was 12 years. How long, uh, how old was Jairus' daughter? 
12 years, as long as this little girl's been alive, this woman has been hemorrhaging. That's a long time. You're going to find out in a moment how horrible her condition was. But what was her condition? Internal bleeding. This was not a menstruation thing. And it's very clear in Leviticus, there's a line that runs out. It says, if it's a menstruation issue, you do this. If it's beyond that, you do this. And it lays out that the woman is unclean. There's that word again. You are not fit for society as long as that is occurring in you. you. Anything you touch, anything you lay on, anything you sit on, and anyone that's around you will be unclean. So no one's supposed to get near this woman. How tough were the crowds that were around Jesus? Pretty brutal. How many people do you think she touched on her way in? You guys get the, uh, the problem here? She's running around pushing people out of the way to reach down. And what did she do? She grabbed the edge of his cloak. Now, that's a specific word. It means she touched the fringe of his cloak. Uh, Jews in that day on their outer garment wore four tassels and there was one blue thread that was wound through it. There's this big, huge thing about how they're supposed to be made. And they're called tzitzits. And you have them on the edge and you would... You had this cloak and then you would wind blue thread through is what I was trying to say. And she grabbed onto that. It was a reminder that you're a Jew. It's a reminder that you're a child of God. It's a reminder to follow the obedience of the commandments of God. Jesus had those on his outer garment. And she ran and grabbed one of those. She grabbed it fast, bailed out. Because she didn't want to be found. She wanted to do this very covertly. Now, a side history note is that when the Jews went under heavy persecution, it went from the outer garment to their undergarments. So no one could see it. Then it went on to their prayer shawls. Well, nowadays, because Jews are so free to walk around in Israel, it's on all three. So you will see those tassels all over the place in Orthodox Judaism. She grabbed this and bailed out. Look where we pick up our story. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, but no one could heal her. She had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched the edge of his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. That's a lot of faith. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Underline that and figure it out. That's a weird passage. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, this is funny. This next phrase is one of those famous phrases where a disciple tries to notify the Messiah on what's up. (laughs) Right. Here we go. When they all denied it, which is really funny, like I didn't touch you. You touch him. I didn't touch him. Did you touch him? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. And yet you ask who touched me. Now, that's a nice way of saying that was a stupid question. (laughs) But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. There it is again. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And you go, well, if you're God, don't you kind of know who did it? Jesus limited himself to be in the moment with these people. He set aside that perk of the Godhead, the constant omniscience. And he looked around and he's like, I'm not seeing it. It's not you. It's not you. It's not you. Because she slipped away into the crowd. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her and seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Why was she so scared? Talk about a big spotlight on you. And you now have to tell the story on why you touched the rabbi. Why did you touch the rabbi? Because you're unclean. Who did you touch on the way? How much does everybody now hate you? 
So she's ready for massive rejection. What if the rabbi says, ew? What if that's his reaction? What if the rabbi says, what is wrong with you? Who do you think you are? What, you can just run up and grab me anytime you want? Where's the respect? He could have responded a million ways. She had no idea. So she's trembling. Jesus turned and saw her. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Take heart, daughter, Jesus said. You guys, you can't find a more affectionate term for a man to a woman that he's not married to. How wonderful is that? He stops, drops the tone of everything, and he says, you're okay, don't worry about it. And he calls her what would be better translated as maiden. It's this soft, gentle, affectionate, respectful term for a woman. And in the same way, he shows that he is a protector over her. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And the woman was healed at that moment. Now, you guys remember, we were on our way somewhere when she interrupted the business, right? Where were we going? To heal the little girl. Uh-oh, now time has expired. That was a very emergency situation. So, what do you think happened? While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said, your daughter is dead. They said, don't bother the teacher anymore. What do you think his reaction was? She what? But we, we're on our way. She can't, she can't die. No, no, the Messiah's on his way. What? Why? What, because we took so long? Oh, thanks. Nice. That we had to stop and handle this woman who I can't even stop my daughter from dying. And what? Because you're bleeding. Now suddenly we got to stop this whole thing and my kid dies? That could have been his reaction. That probably would have been our reaction. What is he saying? The ruler knelt before Jesus and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. That's different. We're not even talking about healing anymore. We're talking about resurrection. We're talking about raising from the dead. You ever seen that? Nope. Neither had he. But he believed it. That's serious faith. Ignoring what they had said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, known as the inner three. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, why all this commotion and wailing? Okay, maybe that's not like the funeral that you were at. Right? Let me explain an ancient funeral. As a matter of fact, there was a writing in the Talmud that said, if you do not put all your efforts into the funeral for your loved one, you might as well be burned to death. How about that for pressure? Don't you think you've got to kind of put all your effort into this? All right, well, there's ways that you need to do it. There's three things you've got to nail down if you're going to throw it for someone you love. Number one, you've got to tear your clothes right. There are 39 rules written down as to how to tear your clothes. So you tear your clothes according to the proper fashion to show that you're sad. Second of all, you hire flutists, no less than two. You're like, what? I'm hiring a flutist? That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Creates an eerie, odd sound, creates the atmosphere, right? So now you got two flutists going off in the crowd. Third, you got to hire professional mourners. You ever heard of those? Still happens in today's world. You hire women whose whole job, their whole profession is every day to cry really loud. That's their job. 
So you hire these people, you pay them good money to come in and set the tone for your funeral. And they scream and screech and wail and make all sorts of ruckus to try to set a tone. You go, that's kind of stupid. Well, hold on a second. What are they really trying to do? They're trying to allow you to mourn and set a tone so you can engage with the sadness of your heart instantaneously. When you walk up into the funeral, when they see someone arrive, boom, they hit it again. And the whole idea is that for every person arriving, I want you to know that this person is worth mourning for. And that's why they do it. So Jesus walks into this craziness and he goes, what are we doing here? And then he says something that's absurd to the crowd. What does he say? He said, stop wailing, go away. The girl's not dead, but asleep. Boy, that's going to cause a reaction. In other words, you're all here wrong. Go away. She's not dead. She's asleep. Now, was he really denying this? Was he telling him there's a misdiagnosis? She's totally in a coma. Don't bury her alive. That's what a bunch of commentators say. No, it's baloney. The Bible's very clear. She's dead. But the reason why they say that is because there's two words to use for sleep. One is sleep that also means death, and the other one's just sleep. He uses a word for sleep. Why? Because his whole point was, this is temporary. Just like you wake up, she's going to wake up. Watch this. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, Luke says. After the crowd had been put outside, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in to where the child was. He took the girl by the hand and said to her, Talitha Koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Her spirit returned and immediately the girl stood up and walked around for she was 12 years old. At this, her parents were completely astonished. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, but news about this spread through all the region. Right? That always happens. The last two stories as we close are only found in Matthew, so you can follow along with me in verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, remember this is still one day. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, which is full of jokes right there. But anyway, I'm not going, I don't have time. <laughs> Calling out, that's my sarcastic humor. Calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Now that's a very specific phrase. The Jews believed that there were at least two messiahs that were going to come to their rescue and be their deliverers. The first was Messiah ben Yosef or Messiah son of Joseph. And they believed just like the Joseph in the Old Testament, the guy who um, was the what remember the 12 sons of Jacob and Joseph went through all the suffering. He was put in jail uh, and it wasn't his fault. You guys remember that guy? They believed that just as he suffered, there would come a deliverer who would suffer just like him and he would die for the sins of the people. That was Messiah ben Yosef. And then they believed that there was a Messiah ben David, the son of David, who was the mighty victor that would show up, take Israel underneath his arms, lift them up, completely trample and destroy the Roman Empire, put them back up on top and they would be a mighty nation. Now, which one do you think they wanted first? They wanted the Messiah and David guy, the big victor guy. So sure enough, these guys like Jewish nationalists would do. He starts screaming out, have mercy on us, meaning be nice to us. Oh, great victor. So they keep throwing out this hole. I know you're going to be that military guy. What does Jesus do? Totally ignores him. Walks on. Now, does that seem rude? They were blind. Didn't care. Moved on. Went inside. So sure enough, it says when he had gone indoors, the men, the blind men came to him. Now, why did he put them off? Probably to purify their motive. 
He asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Quick comment. What is this whole business about faith and healing? Right? You hear this a lot. First of all, I'll tell you what I can't stand. And I don't want to have it here in our church. I never want to hear anyone say, you don't have enough faith. That's why you're still in a wheelchair. It's ignorant and it's rude. Stop saying that. You don't know what you're talking about. It's not biblical and you're just being a jerk. No. Then what is the issue about faith and healing? Why does Jesus keep mentioning faith when there's healing? Well, let me ask you this. What's more important for Jesus to fix your eyes or to save you for eternal life? Which one's more important? Okay, eternal life, yeah? Then why in the world would he do a miracle if the deeper healing isn't going to occur? What, so you can see your way to hell? Is that why he's going to do it? I don't think so. What's the point? You don't ever do a miracle unless the deeper motive is reached. And if you say, do you have faith? And they say, I have no idea who you are. I don't care. Then why heal? No, 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 no. Jesus is always meeting the deeper need. And the deeper need is eternal life. So he will always question them and say, do you know who I am? Do you know what I stand for? Do you know that I'm here for the forgiveness of your sins? All right, then let's go. Because I can certainly heal your physical nature. That's what faith is all about. And then look at the next one. Their sight was restored and Jesus warned them sternly. And in Greek, you can't get any more harsh. See that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news all over the region. Okay, so that keeps happening to Jesus. And while they were going out, a man who was demon possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. When the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Two quick notes. First, may label me a heretic. You guys ready? Here we go. First thing, why is this miracle a big deal? We've already read more than once that Jesus cast out demons. So why is this one a big deal? And why would they go, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel? Yeah, last week we just did this. So clearly it's not that big of a deal. So why is this a highlighted story? What I'm about to tell you has, I've researched extensively and I have no evidence for. There you go. So should I be sharing it with you? I don't know. Probably not. But I will. When I was growing up, I was taught something on this passage. And so I did a quick research before I brought it to you and I couldn't find any backup for it. But it was always taught to me as fact. It may or may not be legit. But here's what I was taught. I was taught that in the, you understand that Jews did exorcisms. Are we all clear on that? I mean, the seven sons of Sceva tell that story. And there's a bunch of different things that Jews have always done exorcisms throughout the years. They have very different means than we do. However, they did them. And one of the beliefs or superstitions at the time that was very strong and dramatic in that area was that in order to cast out a demon, you needed to have the person confess that they wanted the demon out. But what happens when you can't talk? In their view, you're done. Sorry, can't help you. No one can cast out that demon. And that's why it was a big deal, because all of a sudden the Messiah walked in and said, what? What are we talking about? No, get out and cast out the demon. Everyone backed up and went, I've never seen exorcism like that. Is that true? I don't know. But did you see what the Pharisees did about it? Well, of course, he cast out demons. He's the prince of demons. 
Whoa, what did you just call him? You guys ever study the passage on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? That's not something to mess with. You understand what I'm saying? They just called him a what? A prince of demons. Why? Because he didn't fit their expectations. Let me leave you with this challenge. What does this say about God that you're not very comfortable with? Right? And when you're not comfortable with the teaching that Jesus just gave you, you're going to make an excuse for it. And you're going to put him in some, tor- some, some type of category. Is that what you're going to do? You're going to push him off? And when he does something that's a little bit outside of your comfort zone or he does something that you're not familiar with or he does something that doesn't fit within your systematic theology, now what? You're going to call it all demonic, right? You better be real careful because you don't know what God can do. God can do all sorts of things. And if the Holy Spirit wants to fly in and do something freaky, that's his business. Therefore, I'm very cautious when I start commenting on other ministries and what other things do. I don't know what God's doing. I will comment on what I see. I will comment on the fruits of their labor, and I will comment on what I see in Scripture. Beyond that, you walk in humbly and just go, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. It doesn't look good to me, but I have no idea. Because here's the deal. God is beyond our comprehension. This Messiah, you're never going to get your hands around. You will never totally figure out Jesus, because he's way beyond anything you could ever imagine. And even when you see him face to face, you're going to be blown away. But that which you know, do you love? That's our responsibility. That which you do understand, do you engage with? That which you do believe, do you act out? That is our mandate. Therefore, we may not get it all, but boy, what a wonderful Messiah we serve. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And we ask, Lord, that today was pleasing in your sight. We ask for you to dig down deep and begin to challenge us at the very core of who we are, that we might be all that you designed us to be. And Father, do not leave any to the flesh. Do not leave any to the enemy, but allow us to be all that you want us to be. May you be glorified in us. May you be the one that we have waited for, the one that changes our lives. May none of us leave here today without engaging with you at our deepest core. Save us, O oh God, just like you always have throughout history. In Jesus' name, amen.